Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. As I came to that passage this week, the phrase that came to me before I even read the version of the message was just desserts, getting what you deserved. And then as I began to reflect on it, as it crossed my stream of consciousness, I had to stop myself and ask myself, well, why did that come across my stream of consciousness? And actually, what does it even mean? I mean, I thought the phrase just desserts or deserts meant, you know, you got it. You did something wrong and you got nailed. But when I talked to other people, they said, no, no, John, it's not a negative thing. Actually, it's a very positive thing. It's getting what you deserve. So then I had to ask myself, well, what does desserts even have to do with all of this? Because in my mind, I was thinking about ice cream. (laughs) So I Googled the phrase, and this is what I came up with, which is the heart of where we're going to go today. Just desserts or just deserts, um, basically misspelled D-E-S-S-E-R-T-S, is an expression that means to get one's due or reward. Now, why do people usually uh, spell it desserts? Well, it seems more logical to associate the phrase with something sweet and delicious, like chocolate cake or a big bowl of ice cream, rather than, you know, a large barren stretch of sand dotted with clumps of palm trees. And I went, oh, deserts like a desert. I I didn't know that at all. I I always thought it was dessert, but I never understood what it connected with. Well, well, then why is it called just deserts? Well, to understand this, you need to look at Latin. So I did. Desert can actually mean many things. It can mean sand dunes, but it also can mean this word, to be abandoned, such as don't desert me in my time of need. And so really, it's saying that they got abandoned. They got what they deserved by being deserted. Did you just catch that? So this is what this whole passage is actually about. We are going to explore today a rarely talked-on area in our faith. It's a prayer that seems to contradict Jesus' command to us as Christians to pray for those who persecute you. It's asking God to get good and angry and to give our enemies their just desserts or deserts. Now, as we just saw, this is how the message renders This last part of the chapter, chapter 3 in Lamentations. Make them pay for what they've done. God, give them their just desserts. Break their miserable hearts. Damn their eyes. God, get good and angry. Hunt them down. Make a total demolition here under your heavens. Wow, I thought. I mean, what do we do with that? I mean, the whole series has been a bit crazy, I admit. But this, this doesn't seem to fit at all. Well, let's take time this morning to explain this and explore this because this type of prayer, hear me closely, is missing from almost all of our lives sitting in this place or our online community and is rarely talked about, let alone prayed from the front in most churches, but actually is one of the most authenticating acts to a world that says that we as the Christian community don't really deal with the stuff of life honestly. Now, last week, Wayne gave us a pause in our series, almost a Selah moment, showing us how to lament, how to pray when we're living in the place of why or how. Yet it was his introduction last week that really grabbed me. Lamentations, he preached to us, is a book about living in the land of in-between. We've had a great past, and God has promised us a bright future. But as we move from here to there, we have to live in and sojourn through this land called in-between. Yes, I thought when I heard him preach. That is one of the best descriptions of the book of Lamentations I have ever heard in all my reading. 
And then he said to us these words, and this is how we navigate this land of in-between. We pray. And so today, this expression of prayer found at the end of Lamentations 3 has to do with the E and the T of Wayne's prayer acrostic. And if you forget it or weren't here, go online and you can hear him talk about it. So if you have a Bible, would you link to or open to Lamentations 3, 39? And that's where we're going to go today. Now, let me start with the center of this book again. It's important as we walk together. The center of this book, believe it or not, is not suffering. It's not past or future. It's not songs of lament, nor is it even the people of God or the prophet. Let's start with God. You see, God himself has chosen to reveal himself to us, and we see him in his complexity, in his multifaceted personality, through his acts and by his names. Through what God does and who God is, we begin to embrace and see him. God is love. He is holy, provider, judge, shepherd, king, husband. He is called presence. He is called dwelling place, refuge, shield, fortress, strong tower, and the list goes on and on. But here in Lamentations, if you've joined us over the last while, we have seen another side of God, another name working itself out. You see, God also is called God the warrior, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, or the God of angel armies. This name was given to remind the people of God that the relationship they had meant that God and his angelic armies would work on their behalf. But, and this is a huge but, When they chose to be unfaithful, he would actually turn around and become warrior on them. He would war against them when they chose to break the marriage vows that they had made with him. One wrote these words, behind God's actions as warrior always stands the idea of covenant. By the time of Moses, if you read the Bible, there are already three covenant-making ceremonies recorded in Holy Scripture, Noah. Abraham and Moses. And when you get to Moses, God initiates, this is so important, God initiates a relationship of love. You don't obey God to get to know him. He shows up and loves you first and we love him back. And then comes the obedience. God makes promises to his people, but then he expects them to follow his laws. These laws are sanctioned by blessings and curses. If his people obey the law, then great blessing will come. But if they choose to break the law long-term, short-term, there will be curses. You see, the relationship between the divine warrior name and the covenant is found in Deuteronomy. On one hand, God has promised his people, if you obey me, I am going to bless you beyond belief. Here it is, Deuteronomy 28.7. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction and they will flee in seven. But on the other hand, it says that if Israel becomes unrepentant and chooses to mess around with other gods, then God will turn and become warrior on them. In the same chapter, Deuteronomy 28, 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at them from one direction, but you will flee from them in seven, and you will become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms on the earth. Well, then we come to the time of Jeremiah, right? God is like the jilted husband at this point in Scripture, like a lover spurned, like a faithful spouse wrecked by the news that his wife ran around, not just with one guy, but many guys, and had sex with all of them. And, oh, by the way, just loved it. Anger, betrayal, pain, hurt, question. These are the emotions we see written in Holy Scripture about God himself. 
The people of God were like that wife that would come home, act all loving or kind or full of joy, faithful. But as God looked into his spouse's eyes, he saw it. All the lovers, all the betrayal, all the excuses, all the lies, and all the deceptions. Every prayer, think about this. Every prayer and every sacrifice and every festival he had given to them to remind them of his love now become a painful sign of other lovers, not him. As a nation, they were like the spouse that worked late all the time. They went on business trips and they covered desertion and adultery, thinking God would never really find out. They booked hotel rooms and had secret getaways with secret credit cards because they didn't believe the spouse at home really needed to know. They stayed up all night consumed how they could cover their tracks, embracing fantasy, which now in our time has become unholy reality. We can have our cake, they said, and and we can eat it too. These other gods, don't you understand? They're more fun, they're newer, they're younger, they're sexier. They let us do what we feel and what we want to. We're free of your rules, free to express ourselves naturally under the trees and beside the altar. But see, what they thought was freedom was actually sexual atrocity and demonic bondage. Knowing it or not, the first and greatest of all lies lies spoken in Eden was embraced at every one of these encounters. Do you remember what Lucifer whispered to Eve and then Adam? God's a liar, don't you know? God doesn't really care about you. God's not in control. God will never know. Let us eat the forbidden fruit. Let us be like God and command our own destinies. We've decided we can do it. And so as I've preached before and Wayne did also, after years of warning, years of pleading, years of trying to save this marriage with God's word already given in Deuteronomy, sending prophet after prophet, Jeremiah for 40 years, it's now all come to pass. The loss of favor and the curses are now in full effect. And as we've seen so far this summer, lamentations is nothing but the outlining of the results of the people turning their back on God And then him doing the same to them. But suddenly, two weeks ago, as we read through the text together, something changed. We finally saw a shift moving from trying to grapple with such destruction to a nation, now looking up and actually being honest, wanting to come home. They began to do something many of us have done. They began to repent of their sins. Read it with me, Lamentations 3.39. Why should any living person complain about being punished for their sins. Let us examine our ways and test them. Let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to the God of heaven and say, we have sinned and we have rebelled and you have not forgiven. But suddenly at the end of this song, this lament, this funeral dirge, the language shifts again. It moves from community now to profit, from all to one. You see, at this moment in history now, the people have begun to confess their sins. And now they're waiting to see if God is going to respond. And as we're about to read, the prophet is about to say back directly to God's face, you have always and you still do hear me and you have promised, so you have to move God. Listen to the words, Lamentations 347. We have suffered terror and pitfalls and ruin and destruction. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. My eyes will flow unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees. See, the author knew that God had promised to restore Israel when she called on him from captivity. He knew that God the warrior would again become ally and husband and friend and lover and king when they turned. 
So he said, I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to give myself and you, God, no rest, no relief until you look. Why? Because I know what you've promised and what you've written. Deuteronomy 30, two chapters later, or five chapters later, this was what was written. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I've commanded you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and will have, here it is, compassion on you. And so with bold, almost crossing the line passion and prayer, he keeps poking God like on Facebook, but really hard, over and over and over, yelling out. He bangs on heaven's door and says, I am expecting you, God, to act. I called on your name, he says, verse 35, 55. I call on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. I want to express my need to you, God. What you've done and what you're going to do, I am hopeful. I come to you, God, and no one else. I come to you as I am, in the depths of my misery, actually drowning in a pit. I was shocked last week when I was studying to find out the word pit is the same word from, from Scripture to mean hell. Do you understand the raw intensity of this great man of God who, I remind you again, was innocent in his cries? He says, God... I come to you from hell itself, and I am demanding that you hear me. Look upon me. Verse 56, hear my plea. Hear my plea. Don't close your eyes to my cry for relief. Don't shut your eyes. I, I need this relief. God, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Don't turn. Don't turn. Don't close your eyes. Don't cover your ears. I am crying out. And what happens? God listens. Now we're uncomfortable with that. But then what's about to be uttered? What's about to come out of the prophet's lips next? This next prayer is actually moving us into territory where most of us, if not all of us, are not comfortable at all. See, finally here, the prophet is about to turn his prayers and ask for the enemies of the people of God to get theirs, their just desserts. It starts with great comfort and hope, and then becomes highly messy, and if I can say, very un-Canadian. <laughs> Verse 57. You came near when I called you, and you said, love this, don't fear. See, he looks back at God's promises, and he knows God's going to come, but he even looks back at his own situation. See, back in Jeremiah 38, he was literally sitting in a pit and was being about to be murdered, and, and God saved him. As one wrote, actually, Jeremiah is a living example, an incarnation to Judah, what God's loyal love is all about. And so God, at this moment, begins to move. Heaven bends down like we celebrate at Christmas, becomes advocate, savior, warrior to an undeserved but ever-loved people. Oh, Lord, you took up my case. You redeemed my life. He's finally seen here as redeemer, the one that rescues and recovers. Redemption, you know, is one of the most important words in the Bible. If you're a highlighter person, this is the one you want to do it. It's a financial metaphor. It means to actually be bought back from slavery. And for us as Christians, this is everything. Theologically, it means for us atonement, reconciliation, salvation, liberation from bondage of sin, death, the power of the law, the demonic by Jesus, of course, fully in the end. 
This is what the prophet says. I have cast myself on divine mercy. I find that God is already present with me as advocate. You have saved me. You have bought me back from slavery. You have saved my life. But then the prayer moves further. He moves from thanksgiving to request. See, Jeremiah knows the nation has suffered because of long-term unrepentant sin. But somewhere in the soul of soul, there still lingers a feeling that some injustice has just gone too far. As one wrote, he submits the case now to the supreme arbiter of human affairs, even though he's aware that the punishment and degradation of Judah has resulted from prolonged disavowal of the covenant obligation, he still throws himself on the mercy of the judge and expects, here's a word, expects to hear a pronouncement that's just and equitable. You've seen, O Lord, the wrong they've done to me. Verse 59, uphold my cause. You've seen the depth of their vengeance, all their plots against me. Look at the depth of vengeance, O God. Seriously. Look at the vindictiveness of these people. Uh, Spite, malice, unholy cruelty, nastiness, unkindness. They just love torture and death. They, They should find no joy, God, in being used by you to chastise us, but they've gotten off on our suffering and blood. They're drunk on torture. O Lord, 61, you've heard their insults, right? All their plots against me, what my enemies whisper and mutter against me all day long. Look at them. Look at them sitting or standing, mocking me in their songs. Pay them back for what they deserve, O Lord, for what their hands have done. Put a veil on their hearts and may your curse be on them. Pursue them in anger and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. When's the last time you've heard that prayed on Sunday morning? So what do we do with this? I mean, what do we do? What do we do with God get them and then Jesus telling us we'll pray for those that persecute you and forgive as you've also been forgiven? Well, it actually may shock you, but actually, we're supposed to pray both. Now, follow this. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it command us specifically to hate our enemies. It it never, ever does this. It it commands us to hate evil, and it has great recollections or expressions of hatred towards adversaries. Psalm 139, do I not hate those, O Lord, who hate you? The tendency to seek vengeance on one's enemies is deeply rooted in human nature. A series of psalms, imprecatory psalms, call out for God's vindication and sometimes for vengeance against enemies. You want to read a tough psalm? Read Psalm 137. It's a terrible cry for vengeance against the Babylonians. But within the Old Testament, there's another attitude too. It's quite wrong to oversimplify this. Well, in the Old Testament, you hate your enemies. In the New, we love everyone. That's just not true. In the Old Testament, there are lots of examples where people, godly people, love their enemies. Joseph loved his 12 brothers who tried murdering him. Or what about Elisha's treatment of the Arminian army that were sieging around and and they actually feed them and don't slaughter them? Or, Or what does the Proverbs say? Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy's hungry, give them bread to eat. If they're thirsty, give them water to drink. And then you're going to heap coals on their heads, and the Lord will reward you. So again, like I asked, what do we do with God get them and Jesus teaching us to do the opposite? Well, like I said, we're actually called to pray both types of prayer. Here's the lessons for today. They're important because they're rarely, rarely embraced, let alone talked about in churches. Lesson one. Pray this way so you don't sin too. 
Hear me again. Pray this way, just like Jeremiah. Pray this way so you don't end up sinning too against the living God. Pray these prayers because A, it's authentic to God. It's better to pray these things to God who knows all and sees all and is going to work everything out. If we don't, hear this, if we don't, we will be tempted to take it into our own hands. You see, God is sovereign and his promises stand in the now and the life to come. God is the first judge and by the way, he's the best. And so we as people of faith are called to cry out these types of prayer so we don't end up sinning against ourselves and thus take vengeance on other people also made in the image of who? God. Leaving this in God's hands then allows us as Christians to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. See, hear this this morning. We are never, we are never, we are never the hands of wrath for God. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. Saying, well, John, what are you saying? Well, it's like this. Go before God and cry out for justice in a way you never have before. I mean, with this intensity and anger. Because you will then be able to know, because of God's character, that he's going to deal with it. We'll say, how is he going to deal with it? Well, one of two ways. Either that person that has so deeply wounded you is going to become a Christian and all the wrath they deserve is already placed on Jesus, so Jesus has taken the punch. Or on judgment say, that person or corporation or family or country is going to stand before God and is going to be judged and it's going to, well, basically ripple into eternity. It's called hell. One of two ways, hell or Jesus, judgment is going to be felt. Justice is going to be given. And only then, when you accept what the scriptures teach about that, only when you cry out, God, give them their just desserts, and you trust him to do it on judgment day or on Jesus, only then, because now you know what's going to be dealt with, then you can say, Lord, forgive them. Help me to forgive them. Help me to be involved. Because if you don't do A, then you'll never end up being, being in the place to do B. This is one of the most important teachings for us because we've been taught our whole life we can't pray this way. But because we have a bad view of Judgment Day and a wrong view of the cross, we didn't think we could do this and obey Jesus. And the answer is, oh yes, you can and you need to. Here's the second lesson out of this today. We need to pray this way as Christians. Hear this. Because we live in a really dangerous world. We live in an evil world. Hide all you want, we do. Drug cartels, human trafficking, religious war, religious atrocity on a level we have never seen, sexual atrocity, it is an overwhelming thing. From porn industries to drugs to genocide and murder, we live in a fallen world. And listen, only God knows the height, depth, and scale of sin done by corporations, by governments, by families and individuals. So much is done in secret, but God knows all. And so we as the people of God need to cry out to the living God for justice. Ask God to intervene, to see, and to save, and to stop evil. Let me go farther. We need to cry out to God to mop up the kingdom of darkness. Yes, I know that sin is broken, and death is broken, and the demonic are defeated, Colossians 2, but they're still alive and active. This prayer is praying that your kingdom, God, would come and your will would be done. Your reign and rule would be embraced and submitted to. It is actually praying what Jesus said, deliver us from what? The evil one. This is called radical prayer. 
Richard Foster said this type of prayer refuses to let us say on the fringes of life's great issues. It's calling on God to shut down wickedness. It is actually an act of spiritual defiance. As Foster writes, to the extent that it's authentic, it begins to undermine the status quo. It is a spiritual underground resistance movement. We become the voice for the voiceless, pleading their cause all the way to heaven. We demand to be heard, and we insist that changes happen. Biblical prayer, writes Walter Wink, is impertinent. It's persistent. It's shameless. It's more like haggling in an outdoor bazaar than polite monologues you find in church. How's your prayer life looking so far? It's like Abraham when we bargain with God over the fate of the city, Genesis 18. Like Moses arguing with God over the fate of his people, Exodus 32. Like Esther, we plead over a whole fate of a nation, Esther 4. Our spiritual defiance involves attempting to change God's mind when we know it's his will anyway. Donald Bloch, the great theologian, says sometimes the prayer of faith involves defiance of God bordering on presumption. Martin Luther even said the might of prayer is so great that it overcomes both heaven and earth. He even spoke of conquering God in the sense, and here it is, that we are seeking to bind God to his own promises. In the same way we see at the end of the Lord's prayer, deliver us from the evil one. It's a prayer where we're saying, God, please, we beg you, bring the future into the tension of the now. Bring resurrection power into the most decaying thing in creation called us. Was N.T. Wright thinking on that phrase in the Lord's Prayer, who sums this up so well? Follow it. It is a prayer that the forces of destruction, dehumanization, and anti-creation, and anti-redemption would be bound and gagged, that God's good world may escape from being sucked down into their morass. It is our responsibility as we pray like this to hold God's precious and his precarious world before our gaze, to sum up to God its often inarticulate cries for help, for rescue, for deliverance. Saying, God, deliver us from the horror of war. Deliver us from human folly, appalling accidents that come from it. Let us not become a society of rich fortresses and cardboard cities. Let us not be engulfed by social violence or self-righteous reactions. Save us from arrogance and pride and the awful things people do. Save us from ourselves and deliver us from the evil one. And then I love how he ends this. You can't pray prayers like this from a safe distance. I had an experience of this a few weeks ago. We were praying on Wednesday night for personal renewal, for the revival of our whole church and the awakening of our whole area. And suddenly when we were praying for our area, Durham, I I started literally to cry out to God. I'm not usually a yeller. And this is what I said. Mm. Why, God, are you letting evil bind the hearts of hundreds of thousands of people in Durham? I mean, I take the scripture serious. I hope you do. It says in Corinthians, right, the God of this world blinds the minds of unbelievers. They can't see Jesus. Remove them, they can see Jesus. Don't remove them, they stay blind. I said, God, you've conquered them through Jesus. You've stripped them of their power. Why don't you just rise up and break the back of the evil one in Durham? Why don't you let people see, let people hear, let people meet your son Jesus? They're destined for this. You don't want anyone to perish. How long, O Lord, break them Bring them down so awakening can truly happen. Act, I cried out, act, or all these people perish. 
That's the type of prayer that we see in Jeremiah. He's authentic before God so he doesn't take vengeance into his own hands. But he also understands that God is a just God and a good God. And he has the right to demand justice for God is the author of creation. And especially in the New Testament, when we come to the kingdom of darkness, we should be praying these prayers to God all the time. Because let me tell you again, strategy, strategic planning, all aside, which is all good in programs, unless God moves and breaks evil, we will have no influence in Durham. And most of you don't believe that. We need to learn from Lamentations how to cry out for justice. God teaches us as a community how to not take vengeance so we actually can learn forgiveness. He shows us how to pray in new, uncomfortable ways so freedom can come to others like it did to us. I remind you, people prayed for us too. But the greatest thing in Lamentations 3 where I end is this. The gospel is here. The gospel is right here. Anyone sitting in the sound of my voice, you in the online community, you listening here, if you are not a Christian, the path to finding the living God is actually seen right here, and it's found in that word redemption. Everything that we are in this place is about redemption. Every one of us was made to have relationship with God, but because of sin, we're separated like the city in Lamentations. We walked away, and now we're under God's judgment. Yet God so loved us, he sent Jesus. We could never get to God. That's why he had to come for us. He lived that perfect life. He died a death. He took the wrath we all deserved. And then three days later, as we celebrated Easter, he conquered death and sin and Satan. And here's the word every Christian would use in this place. We've been redeemed. He comes to buy us back. I love what Paul wrote in Romans 5. For if we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more being reconciled shall we be saved through his life? My challenge to you today, you who do not know Jesus, whether you have the name Christian or not, is this. It's time to meet him. Follow the cry of lamentations all the way to the cross, and then eternal life and forgiveness and new starts and friendship and purpose will be given to you. Stop running and trusting in everything and everyone but God. And what I love about, what I love about Lamentations 3 is, Four verses actually encompass the path you have to take as a seeker to meet him. Lamentations 3.39. Be honest about your sin. Lamentations 39 and 40. Let us examine our ways and, and test them. The first thing anyone who meets Jesus, who really wants to know God, needs to do. To be deeply honest about our sin. And then it says at the end of that verse, let us return to the Lord. Trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Invite him into your life. Again, Paul wrote this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart God's raised him from the dead, you're going to get saved. You're going to be bought back from all your stuff. And if you would have the courage to do this, when you come near, you will never be called enemy or foreigner again. Verse 57 will become your life verse. When you came near and I called out to you, God will say back to you, do not fear. What will Jesus do if you really meet him? He'll apply everything he's done for you. He'll redeem you. He'll buy you back. And then verse 58 could actually also become your life verse. 
Oh Lord, you took up my case and you redeemed my life. No one would ever expect anyone to become a Christian out of reading Lamentations. But the truth is, verse 58 is the life verse of every one of us sitting here and watching and listening who's embraced Jesus. So here's how we're going to respond. Alan's going to come lead us in a minute, but I'm going to lead in some prayers. The first prayer is for you who have never met God genuinely through Jesus and you want to. You're going to admit your sin. You're going to embrace him. I want you to pray for this. And, and by the way, all of you who are believers here, here's a time and a moment to pray that God would do his work in here and out in internet land. So why don't you pray with me? And if you're that seeker, pray this prayer, and then I'll lead the community and some others. Dear Lord, I'm just like that city. I've made mistakes, and I've actually sinned right against you. I'm sorry for sin I've committed. I need forgiveness. I need redemption. I do believe you died on a cross for me. You rose from the dead. You're alive. So come into my heart and life right now. I want to trust you and follow you, Lord Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. I want this to be my verse. I I want this to be my verse. You took up my case. You redeemed my life. God, I pray you just right now, if anyone's prayed that, you'd now send the Spirit of God in them, seal them, and we as a church pray that they would grow and become a great follower of Jesus and would be able to show world redemptions possible. And as we're just praying right here, Lord, I I pray you'd again work in our Christian community. If you just prayed that first prayer, just make sure to tell someone you did that. Myself at the desks, someone you came with. Email us or Facebook us online if you just did that. But for us as Christians who've already said yes to Jesus, here's our prayers. Lord, I pray for some people in this community that have never, ever, ever been honest about their deep cry for vengeance towards you. I pray, God, you give them permission to cry out from the depths of everything they are so then they can be free to forgive. I pray in the name of Jesus, too, that good teaching, biblical teaching, will form our worldview so we can trust you, God, that justice will be done, whether on Jesus or on Judgment Day. So many of us don't trust you, and so we resist you in this area. I pray that be broken. And lastly, we as a church follow what the disciples said and said, Lord Jesus, teach us to pray. And Lord, we don't know how to pray sometimes in a dark world. We want to be careful because we deeply honor and respect and worship you. But Lord, I pray that you'd begin to train people in this church to cry out for God to move in this world, for you, Lord, to move in this world in deep and powerful ways. And I do end my message like this. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will you let the kingdom of darkness rule this area? How long we cry out for you, God, to send your spirit and your people in such power and way that crime and violence is broken, that families are restored, and that people meet the Lord Jesus. But it will only happen if you let justice roll down and you begin to set people free. We bring your word back to you, Lord, and ask you to act. Because if you don't act, we can't do anything. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The God who worked in Jeremiah's life, who inspired lamentations, who is Jesus, is found in this church. Amen. 
Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.crotherscreek.ca. 